Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Nick Earls is an award-winning author of 12 novels and two short story collections. His latest is The Fix, the story of a wannabe investigative journalist working instead as a fixer, the PR spin master who can get any client out of a bind. Nick has written both popular adult and young adult fiction. His books for kids include After January and 48 Shades of Brown, which won the Children's Book Council Book of the Year Award Older Readers. It was also made into a feature film in 2006. Of his popular fiction novels, he is most well known for Zigzag Street, which has been adapted for theatre and plays regularly in Brisbane, and his 2009 novel, The True Story of Butterfish. Nick, thanks for joining us today. Oh, look, thanks for having me. It's great to get the chance to talk to you again. It's, um, we, we're very, very excited about your latest book, The Fix. Tell us a bit about it. Well, it was a long time happening, really. The first idea came on maybe eight years or so ago. Uh, and the idea at that stage was that uh, I, I might write about someone who was a private person doing a non-public job whose two most significant things that he would like to keep private have become very public, uh, that being his dodgy businessman father who's no longer with us and uh, and his role in a siege uh, at work for which he's being awarded a bravery decoration. I thought it'd be interesting to write about someone like that. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, maybe that person's not my central character. Maybe I don't get into that person's head and reveal everything. Maybe it'd be interesting to let that person remain a little enigmatic mm. and, and a bit of a mystery and a bit elusive. And I thought, I need another character to narrate that character, someone to put close to that story who's got some, something at stake himself, some vested interest. And that's how I came up with Josh, the central character, who is the PR guy getting Ben, the medal recipient, through the process of winning the award. But the problem is that the more Josh tries to get Ben ready, the closer he looks at the siege story and the more the cracks in the story start to show. And it looks as though someone's been trying to fix the story before Josh came along to polish it and take it out to the public. So do you know a fixer? <laughs> I know quite a lot of people who work in PR, which is not exactly the same as this, mm -hmm. but it's a, it's, it's a kind of close cousin or sibling of this sort of job. Uh, and I've... I mean, I've put quite a few books out now. Yes. So, uh, so you know, creating someone who works in spin and gets ready, gets someone ready for interviews, uh, <laughs> is not a huge stretch because I've been spun myself and I've had people get me ready for interviews. So, I've I've been in that role and it's it's been interesting to be sort of on the inside of that. And then over the past few years, as various companies have 
have faced scandals. I think we've all had the chance to see them on TV, uh, deep in the pit of the scandal when things are at their ugliest. And then things start to shift a little uh, and, and they get back on message, as people might say. And, uh, and you see in the background of the scene, there's often someone uh, in a suit trying to blend with the wallpaper. Uh, and that's the person who's been called in uh, to get them out of the hole. Now, most of your books are set in Brisbane, including the latest one. Why have you mm. decided to stick with such a familiar setting? You know, there are some people who live in Brisbane or Sydney, but they decide to set their books in New York or the Irish Moors or something like that. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't, I don't think I've got an obligation to set things there. But and and, I, and I've been doing some writing where uh, where I've set things in other mm. places. But I think um, my stories are about the people in them and uh, and and the stories themselves. And and I think I want most of the time I want to focus all of my creative attention and my imagination on the characters and the story. And I learned a while ago that if you're not inventing a place or having to familiarize yourself with a very unfamiliar place, then you don't have to spend all your creative capital on, on coming up with the details of the place. You might as well use the world around you because it's the thing you know best. And then you can direct your storytelling attention to your characters and the story itself. And also, if you use a world you know or a world you can easily get to, um, and I guess that can also apply online now as well as physically, mm. um, you find small details that give you new ideas for your story. So uh, I think for me, uh, writing if I'm writing contemporary fiction, um, I might as well set it in a place that I, that I know. If I, if I were to write something set 3,000 years in the future or 3,000 years in the mm. past, um, I wouldn't be setting them in contemporary Brisbane and I'd have to devote a lot of energy to, to creating a place. Mm. But, um, but there's no need to do that if I'm writing the kinds of stories that I am. And, uh, and I can give the stories a lot more attention if I just use the place I know. So there's very practical reasons too. <laughs> no, it's, it's very practical, exactly. That's right. And, and it doesn't, what it does is if people know these places, if people, in the case of the fix, know the Brisbane and the Gold Coast, then they'll find little things in there that'll be familiar. And that's a nice experience mm. as a reader. But if they don't know them, it's not a problem at all because we're all used to reading books from, from elsewhere. Uh, I mean, if, if we couldn't read books from places we didn't know, Steve, Steve Glasson wouldn't have sold anywhere near as many in Australia. Um, so so we, we can do that. And, you know, people in I've had mail from people in Scandinavia reading my books mm. uh, and fascinated to read about Brisbane <laughs> and actually thinking it's quite an exotic <laughs> place, which is not the way a lot of local people might think about it. No. So, as you say, your books focus on the people. Now, you must be, you must be quite an acute observer of human behaviour or must need to get you know, get those skills. What do you do? Are you a bit of a people watcher? Do you sit and um, think about why people react in the way they do, like many actors do? How do you actually get into that kind of mode? I, I guess for me, this has been a, in development for a long time, the way I do this. I did a medical degree in the mm. 80s and then spent time working in psychiatry after that and if I'd gone on to stick with medicine my plan was to specialize in psychiatry so I was kind of interested in the way people's minds work uh, long ago and 
and I want my characters to feel real. I want them to feel like real people that you're eavesdropping upon rather than types or rather than people who've been constructed as some kind of device as part of the story. So I need to pay attention to the real world and do quite a bit of thinking about why people do what they do and why they say what they say. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think the more you do that with the world around you, the more little fragments you might pick up that might be useful at some point in a story or might trigger something completely fictitious that will be useful in a story. And, and a lot of my stories, and, and certainly this one, uh, are built up from a lot of small pieces. And uh, I think we've got to give them the time uh, to, to kind of come together and, and then let ourselves interrogate those pieces and think, what is this story? Who are these people? Mm. And that's when, that's when I kind of build on that uh, and, and, and want to create characters who, who people get to know piece by piece the way we get to know people. So your readers might get to know them piece by piece, but when you actually develop your characters or your key characters, do you, before you even start writing, have their entire backstory you know, mapped out and really know them intimately, or do you let them develop on the page? Uh, I, I do a lot of work beforehand. Um, I don't necessarily know everything about them, and I don't have some kind of... Um, formal chart that I draw up where I, you know, work out their height and weight and whatever else. Um, I know more than I need to know, and that's the bare minimum, I think. Uh, I, I, I need to know more than I'm going to put in the novel because that puts me in a position to choose the best and most informative and most interesting bits. Uh, to include in the novel. And I, I know some people, of course there are writers who do it differently, mm. who who explore this process during their first draft um, and end up with first drafts that are very drafty uh, and, and end up writing lots of drafts. That's one way to do it. I prefer to do that beforehand, before I write the thing that I view as my first mm. draft. Uh, and and I like to have a period of time where I, I let myself think quite divergently. I, I think about the characters, I think about the story, I add a lot of notes to the file and I don't throw any out. Everything remains possible for quite a long time until there's a lot of stuff there and I think surely I've got more than I need now. What is my story? Who are these people? And I, can't, and I start pulling that out of the folder and that's when I make choices and I think, for me, the first thing to do is to create a lot of possibilities. The second thing to do is to look, look back at them, scrutinise them closely and make choices. Uh, I'm in a better position to make the choices if a lot of things are possible. And then from those choices, I put together my outline. And because I spent a while getting to know the characters in the story, the outline's often about a quarter of the length of the novel and contains chunks of conversation and things like mm. that. So then when I sit down to write my first draft, I've got an awful lot of stuff there. I'm free to have new ideas while I'm writing it. Uh, and free to be cleverer than I have been before. Mm. And, you know, it's great, great if that happens. But it does mean I'm, I'm a lot less likely to get stuck because I, I'm not going to find myself 40,000 words in thinking, what happens next? Because right. uh, I know what happens next. But if something else comes along and happens next, well, that's great too. Um, but, but I've got an idea of where the thing finishes and I've got a kind of roadmap that will get me there uh, and yet the freedom to explore other things if they come along. That seems to me like... 
like a uh, a mixture that works for me at mm. least. I mean, that's great that you have less chance of getting stuck because you have, as you say, all those chunks of stuff. But then you may face the situation of working out, well, which ideas are worth investing in and going down that yes. rabbit hole and which are, oh, my God, this is it could be a big risk. I'm not sure, but maybe I should go there anyway, but it could waste weeks. How do you determine... <laughs> How do you determine what to choose, what to actually spend your time yeah, on? Yeah, um, that's, that's an interesting part of the process. Yeah, I, I, I try early on to kind of um, to sort of stress test some of the ideas a bit, uh, to push them, work out it and think, where is this going to take me? What implications is this going to have? What possibilities is this idea going to create? And what possibilities is it going to shut down, which is probably at least as important, if not more important. Mm. Uh, so I try to work through a lot of those things before I do the actual writing. <laughs> but, you know, I'm open to learning things when I do do the writing. The other thing I think is that people when writing first drafts, have to give themselves the freedom to write a first draft. It's not the finished product. Uh, it's actually okay to try some things that don't work out. It's better than trying nothing at all. So um, so there are going to be things that I, I was actually looking through this morning and realizing with uh, the, the fix, because you know, it's been out a few days now, and people have... Uh, people have been asking me, with the central character Josh being a blogger and there's mention of his blogging topics in there, uh, and, uh, and they said, you know, what's his blogging actually like? And I realised that there was one time, um, sometime between maybe the first and second draft or second and third draft, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not really sure which to call an entire draft and which not, mm -hmm. frankly, because there were a few sort of times when I fiddled around with it. Uh, but there was one time when I was thinking, maybe I should write those mm. blogs and include them in the novel as sort of in sort of breakout boxes and things like that. But then I thought, no, I've got I've got a lot of story happening here. I've got more story than usual. I've got a whole lot of stuff to deal with, and 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 it feels like good stuff. So I should back that, and I should not digress mm. to include lots of 500-word blogs on quirky subjects. Mm -hmm. But for a couple of drafts, I did have half a blog, half of one of his blogs in there so people could see that. Uh, uh, 273 words on the subject of toothbrushes and why they've evolved from the very straightforward toothbrush of you know 20 years ago to the toothbrush we now have with the, the contoured chubby grip and the flexible neck and three different kinds of bristle that cost you six dollars um, as opposed to a really straightforward one which might cost a dollar and is it any better for cleaning your teeth? So that was one of Josh's blog topics and I, and I did kind of write half of that blog and include it in the novel for a few drafts but then I'd, even that got cut so it's okay I think to put things in there and then question them later and I think the job of subsequent drafts is to take a fresh read at something, ask all the questions you need to ask and then go back and write another draft with a new agenda and then of course at some point an editor comes in with a fresh pair of eyes and a whole lot of expertise mm. and asks a lot of rigorous questions again so it's not as though things can just sort of drift into a novel and pass through undefended uh, uh, or with, without without scrutiny. Um, it's uh, and I think that that's a really important part of the process. But you shouldn't kind of live in fear of the scrutiny uh, or live in fear of including something that might one day get cut out because you get. Uh, you know, you get a good few shots at it before the finished product mm -hmm. comes out, and I think that's a good thing. Now, you may have killed off Josh's blog posts in the book, but did you consider letting his blog live on beyond the book, as in online, Josh actually blogging? Yeah, 
Yeah, I did. I did consider that. Uh, and there, there are a bunch of blog ideas mentioned in the book that I thought would be amusing ideas to write about. Uh, there's one that, that, you know, Josh, that, that, that's in there early on where uh, I learned from a newspaper because there's lots of things I tore out from newspapers and wondered what I'd do with and that, that actually fitted with his blogging job. Uh, and uh, there was a thing that I read once that said, the worst month of the year for office photocopy repair people is December. <laughs> Uh, because of the office Christmas party and people having far too many drinks and then photocopying their buttocks uh, because the breaking strain of a glass is 55 kilos. Uh, and the other important thing is that the temperature of the light is 170 degrees. So you know, it's a significant you know, occupational health issue. Hopefully you aren't coming into direct contact with the light unless the glass cracks at the exact wrong moment, but you're still pretty close. Um, so... So, you know, Josh goes and follows a photocopy repair guy uh, through the offices uh, of, of Brisbane uh, the morning after various Christmas parties repairing the, the glass. Um, and I like that idea. And I was tempted to write that. But then, then I realized in the case of that one, I actually liked it more just as an idea and didn't really know what I'd do with it as a blog. So this was a chance to, uh, to, to get quite a bit of use out of a range of amusing ideas that looked like they had blog potential, but in fact did their best work in 25 words or less. Yes. Do you, you know, you've been writing books for um, oh, a really long time, 20 years or so now. Mm. Has a lot changed in the publishing landscape? I don't, oh. I, I don't mean so much, you know, in, in, of course a lot has changed, but in terms of how you feel you need to approach your writing and marketing your own books, do you think that has changed a lot? Hugely, mm -hmm. yes. Uh, well, some things have changed hugely. And in some cases, it's important to, um, to kind of get back to the straightforward principles and not be shaken off balance too much. Mm -hmm. um, I think I've learned a lot about how to find and how to write a story. And I haven't changed what I do there very much. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there will be, there are going to be new um, art forms out there which involve text and a whole lot of other things and a whole lot of people collaborating with a lot of high-speed internet connections and that kind of thing. But that's not a novel and I do like writing novels and I, I hope to keep doing that. So um, the actual writing of the novels for me hasn't changed a great deal. The process of bringing them out into the world has changed a lot. Um, book tours now, uh, you still do uh, still do a lot of interviews, uh, but uh, things schedules change at much shorter notice now. But more than that, you've got to maintain a web presence, mm. not just when the book is new, uh, but all the time. Yes. So um, last night I got my 3,000th follower on Twitter. Um, I'm on Facebook as well. I'm blogging now. I've just posted... Uh, I just posted the piece of Josh's toothbrush blog <laughs> that I edited out from an earlier draft of the novel. Uh, and uh, there is a real change mm. there where you're kind of connecting with a wider world, connecting with other writers and publishers and other people who are in those media too, which is great. But also you've got a kind of global community of readers of whatever size. And it is kind of nice to maintain a relationship with them. Uh, on an ongoing basis. Uh, I don't know how much of an impact that has on the sales of books. Um, maybe it does and maybe it's great. Um, but no one 
no one I know is now brave enough not to do it. Uh, you kind of have to be out there doing that. Um, then, of course, the other thing we're facing is the big shifts in, uh, in the book itself. Uh, the thing that seemed to be the big issue a couple of years ago and is genuinely a big issue, uh, that being people buying paper books online from international retailers rather, rather than from bookshops because international um, e-tailers don't, uh, don't have the wages cost and don't have the, uh, the, the rental costs. Uh, the two biggest costs in in most businesses, uh, so they can undercut them, uh, and the price structure changes. So we've been facing that, but of course, ebooks are the big thing mm. that we're facing now. We've kept talking about it as the future, but the future is here, and uh, it will be the the biggest change in the industry, I suspect, since 1450, mm. since the invention of movable type. It's that big a deal. Uh, it'll affect different bits of the industry differently. Mm. From the point of view of writers, mm. though, we're going to still need stories. We're going to still need writers. Um, there are some pluses there. One is that backlist won't have to go out of print. Mm. Uh, when you're, you know, when, it, when a, a print run kind of winds down and a book is selling slowly, now a publisher is likely just to kind of let it peter out. An e-book doesn't have to go out of print because you don't have to do a thousand of them or two thousand of them to keep it in print. Uh, it's, you don't even have to use print on demand to keep it in print. Uh, it, it, it has a unit cost of zero, uh, it, it's storage cost of zero, and it comes into existence when someone clicks on a button and buys it. So backlist won't have to go out of print, that's good. Another thing that I think is potentially uh, interesting is that different forms will become a lot more viable. One in particular that I'm interested in is the novella, mm. um, where if you think about publishers publishing books on paper, the novella is, for all intents and purposes, non-viable. It's very rare to see a novella published, and it only happens in very specific circumstances. Mm. And that's because if you write a story that's 20,000 words long, to actually put it into a standalone paper book, uh, the publisher's probably not going to be bring, able to bring it out for less than about $20, mm. which means it's competing with books that are four times the size. Uh, but as an e-book, none of those rules apply. So you can bring out a novella uh, as, a, as a standalone commodity uh, electronically and sell it for 2 or $3. Mm. And maybe we'll find that there's a market for things like that for two or three hours of uh, of written fiction entertainment, something the length of a movie or the length of a lot of plane flights, uh, and at a at a price point of of two or three dollars, maybe we'll find that that there'll be a, a bit of a surge in in that form in the years to come. I think that'd be great. Is that something you're excited about then? These new changes? Yeah, um, I'm trying to be. Um, I think uh, I think it's too easy to be a hundred percent afraid. Mm. Uh, I think it would be ir irrational to be 100% excited, uh, but I think you've got to set the needle somewhere in between. Um, I think as far as e-books go, they'll have a big impact on book retailing, and that will, that will shake out seriously over the next few years, and, and that's, that's not always going to be easy for authors. Also, um, putting e-books out is going to be very easy. Selling them is going to be a different yes. matter. 
you want to be found by people who go looking for you, but you also want to be discovered by thousands of people who aren't looking yes. for you. And that's going to be the hard thing. And we don't really, we haven't really cracked that one yet. So there are risks out there, and there are going to be lots of e-books that find very few readers, uh, but there are also going to be some that find lots. And the trick is working out how to be in that that group. Mm. Uh, and and some people will be there. So I think um, I think we have to look on it as while while it does come with its challenges, um, it's going to come with opportunities too. And we've just got to um, keep our eyes open for what those opportunities are and how to make the most well, of them. Well, one key way which you've mentioned already is the importance of having an uh, of a, having a web presence. And is that mm. something you, as you were talking about Twitter and Facebook and blogging and your website, is that something that you enjoy? Because I, I talk to a lot of writers who, who resent that and don't actually want to nurture an online presence. What are your feelings on that? Yeah, um, when they say they resent that, um, do they say that to you in an interview or do they just say that in a conversation? Uh, in a conversation. Because you're not really... Al- yeah, you're not really allowed to say that you're resented um, and, and put that out there because because uh, it's not going to look good. Um, I think I think it, there are it too comes with its risks that uh, that you can find yourself tweeting so much that that you you forget to be a novelist and 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 I don't plan to do that. Um, but you need to offer more than just a way for people to buy your product via Twitter. You need to give a bit more back than that. Um, but uh, I think if you can manage its uh, demands on your time and the temptation to be there a lot of the time, uh, and if you can remember to write the novels and have a life, both of those things are quite important, um, then uh, then it can be fun. It actually can be a great way of staying in contact with mm. people. Uh, it can be a great way of finding things out as well. I've learned things uh, from, from being on Twitter, uh, from other people's blogs, from links people have posted, just from things people have mm. said. Uh, opportunities come up. I've been approached by publishers and 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 film people on Twitter and Facebook. Mm. Uh, so, so there there are reasons to be there, uh, and there's fun to be had. Uh, but it's not in itself a job, <laughs> and uh, and you do need to remember to do the job as well. Now, you you said uh, being approached by film people. Now, a few of your books ha- have been adapted for theatre and feature film. Tell us what it's like. Is is about that process? Is it difficult to watch your novel being turned into a film, or is it really exciting? Um, when it's going, when it's not going well, it's sort of as difficult as you allow it to be. Um, if it's not going well, you're better off running away and remembering they're paying you good money, uh, and that you allow them to do that in the first place. I think you need to go into the thing, uh, setting your sights pretty low when it comes to what the outcome might be. Um, probably, uh, the main thing to hope for is that the check clears. Um, beyond that, uh, don't hope for a great film and if you get one that makes you happy uh, realise how lucky you are and be glad you've got it. I I think that's, I mean you really do have to be that pragmatic about it. If you go into starry-eyed you, into it starry-eyed you'll be crushed like a bug most of the time Uh, so it's, it's Better if you're selling your film rights, not to not to hope that you'll be ecstatic about the result. In my case, I've been lucky. Mm. Um, Forty Eight Shades, the film adapted from short Forty Eight Shades of Brown. While it didn't do great box office, 
uh, it was a film I actually really liked uh, and a film I would have happily paid money to see. And that's not because I did a four-second cameo with the belly over the <laughs> line. Um, it was, uh, apart from my four seconds, it was a great film. Uh, and Perfect Skin becoming a film, uh, well, that happened in Italy. It was an adaptation of the Italian edition of the novel. And uh, uh, they... They did a really nice job with that. It was a, 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 a nice Italian film with a big heart, and I would have been happy to see that as a film as well, so that's lucky. Uh, but you don't always get that lucky. And uh, I've got some people adapting, uh, working on adapting my work at the moment, and you know, I hope it works out. Uh, but it's a, it's a tough job getting a film adaptation up, and uh, sometimes it feels... It, it makes it makes being a novelist feel relatively easy, and there's not many things that do that. Well, there's so many people involved. There's so much collaboration. It's it's crazy. And there's so much money, mm. and 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 so much input from those mm. people, particularly the ones who sign the checks. Mm. Um, and this is the that's one of the things that goes wrong sometimes is that someone loves your book and wants to make the film, and they might have great ideas about it. Their take on it might or might not be like yours. Mm. Uh, but even if it is like, uh, if it is like yours, uh, they've got a dream of the film they want to make. But unless they've got $5 million or so to back up that dream, someone else is going to be funding it. And that someone else's main concern is not your yes. book and not their dream. Uh, it's getting their money back because they're, they're making an investment. Yeah. That's their main involvement. Uh, so it's, I think it's in, entirely understandable uh, that those people are thinking about box office and thinking about returns. It doesn't make for good films. It doesn't make for films that resemble the novels that, they, uh, that they're being adapted from. Uh, but if someone's stumping up a big wad of cash, uh, I can completely understand uh, why, uh, why their main concern is not losing it. Mm. Now, you write adult books and young adult books. So particularly with the young adult audience over the last 20 years or so, that audience and, and the types of books in that um, for that audience has changed a lot over, the, over that period. What have you seen and, and how has that impacted your writing? Uh, yeah, I haven't written a young adult book for, for a few years now, not many years, but, but a few years. And I've written five of them. And I, the first one was after January in 1996. The most recent was Joel and Kat Set the Story Straight, which came out in 1997. And during that time, I felt that... 1997? Uh, Nine, sorry, 2007. Thanks for that. Yeah. yeah, it's not like I crammed in five of them within a year and then stopped. No, no, five of them in 11 years. Yeah. Uh, and uh, during that time, I felt that I could, I could kind of reconnect with my teenage self well enough and the way I felt about me and the world then. And that was a good way into writing that kind of fiction. Um, it feels to me that more has changed in the last five or ten years than changed in the preceding 20 uh, with being a teenager, rightly or wrongly. It might just be me being older. Uh, but the, the, for a start, the gadgets seemed different, mm-hmm. but you can always get past that. But the way they communicate now using them is rather different. So there's a lot to learn about being a teenager in order to write a teenage character. Uh, but the, 
the positive thing is any time I work with teenage people in schools, uh, I, I often meet great people um, who don't feel very different at all um, to the teenagers of 30 years ago uh, in terms of their spirit and their outlook and the kind of people they are, even if they're trying to negotiate a rather different world um, and a world that includes a whole lot of things other than books, uh, a lot more distractions, a lot more potential entertainment uh, than than I faced 30 years ago. So it's uh, it's not it's not always easy for books to fight to hold their place in that. But anytime anytime I hear someone say things like that or say it myself, I've got to remind myself that I do repeatedly bump into 15 and 16 and 17 year old people who love reading books and who totally get the pleasure that I've always got from a well-told text-based story that's tens of thousands of words long, whatever we do when we generalise about their attention spans mm. and how much they're on PlayStation mm. and Wii and whatever else. Mm. What's Now, the fix is done. What's next for you? Are you already working on your next novel? I'm working on, on my next book, which uh, is going to be a collection of short stories. Oh. And I, Yeah, I've done a couple of those before. Um, one was my first book uh, 19 years mm. ago. Um, which was pretty much bought only by my mother, uh, which which is great, but you know you can't rely on mum for a career. Uh, the second one, Head Games, in 1999, had a very different life to that, which is great. And after that, I worked for a while on War Child fundraising anthologies, mm. and most of the stories I wrote went into those, which was a different kind of story. Um, and it was great being part of that that project, and it raised three million dollars or more. So. It was really a, a very good thing to be part of. But after that, I sort of took a bit of a pause for a while. And then someone asked me, a couple of people asked me to write short stories a few years ago. And, and I started writing them again and got really excited mm. and thought, this is a form I really want to get back into. And, you know, that really helps. If you're feeling that, if you're, if you're feeling excited about it, you're suddenly looking around for short story ideas and seeing their potential again. And I thought, I want to do more of this. So... So I've been doing a bit of what, that. Uh, what's exciting about it? It's, is it quicker gratification than a novel, or, or what is it that's? Good? <laughs> Look, that that is part of it, uh, and I think sometimes, sometimes when a small idea comes along, you realise it's one piece of a massive jigsaw puzzle and needs to be part of a novel. Sometimes when a small idea comes along, you think this just needs to be what it needs mm. to be. Some ideas really suit short stories or novellas, shorter length forms, and it's better if you don't overcomplicate them. Uh, and, uh, and, and it did kind of clear my head a little sometimes between drafts of the fix mm. to, to have a small, sharply focused, bright idea to focus on and, uh, uh, and, and turn into a short story. It was, uh, it, it, you, you can think in a different way. A novel is too big to keep in your head at one mm. time. I, that might just be the size of my head, <laughs> um, but but I but I don't think I'm alone in that. Um, uh, this, whenever you, one of the hard things about writing a novel, I think, is you know I do a lot of planning, so I've got the novel there to write. But at no particular point, if you're anywhere in the middle of a novel, it's a bit hard to see the beginning and a bit hard to see mm. the end. Uh, whereas a short story, 
doesn't feel like that. And it, it, it is a little different to write in that way. Uh, and, uh, and it was refreshing to get back into it uh, and to, to write a story over the space of a few weeks or a month rather than something that, uh, that might have taken years. So it's like a coffee break for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or a, a palate cleanser between courses. You know, one of those sorts of things. That yeah. sounds good. So on that point on short stories, for aspiring writers out there who would love to see their own novel, you know, finalised one day or in, published one day, what's your advice to them in terms of should they be cutting their teeth on short stories or should they plunge straight in? To the novel. I yeah, I, I don't think there's one right answer. I, I think short stories are very worth while working with. Uh, but if you've got, if the idea that you're most excited about needs to be eighty thousand words long, then don't turn it into a short story. Uh, just because I said short stories are a good idea, um, give that one the space that it needs. But if you're finding if you're coming upon ideas that might, might work really well as short stories, don't fight them off um, just because a novel seems like a more commercial prospect um, because there are avenues for short stories. There are people publishing short stories. You can put them online yourself uh, and it's also a great opportunity to flex your writing muscles mm. and learn, if, learn even more about who you are as a writer. Uh, and sometimes short stories end up triggering novels anyway. Um, there are quite a lot of reasons to write them. I, love sh- I lo- actually love reading short stories. Some of my favorite books are collections of short stories, uh, even though publishers are a bit scared of them uh, and always work on the idea that an author's short story collection is going to sell half to two-thirds of what their novels sell. Mm. Um, it's not always the case. It's often the case. Uh, and so publishers, publishers, publishers don't get excited when you go, my next book's going to be a collection of short stories. Uh, but sometimes it just has to be because some stories have to be short. Uh, and, and I think what writers early in their, in their careers should be doing is pursuing the ideas that excite them the most, working out, working out the best format in which to deal with those ideas and working out uh, the business side of it as a kind of separate thing. Give the ideas your creative best and then when you've got your best work there, uh, look around and work out where it should be going. Um, join your state writer's mm-hmm. centre or your local writer's centre. Um, get involved in things online. Look at the publishing opportunities out there. Look at the competitions for which you're eligible uh, and send the work out to them, expecting that you won't win, mm-hmm. expecting that you won't get any any kind of great return. Um, but uh, but any time you do win, any time you're shortlisted, you're way ahead of you where you were before and you're starting to build up a CV. Mm. Wonderful. And on that note, thank you very much for your time today, Nick. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.